0: Amen. Join me uh, at the place where begins the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, let me ask you, why is it that Jesus teaches? He doesn't necessarily enjoy hearing himself speak. Why then is it that he teaches? What does that imply? Uh, the fact that he uh, spent so much of his ministry teaching and that we've got it recorded it was preserved a lot of uh, divine planning and uh, effort uh, went into preserving the scripture and compiling it what does it mean that christ is a teaching savior a teaching lord god is a teaching god uh, our 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 faith is described and summarized and put in detail and communicated with a book. We, we teach it. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we need to be taught. And it implies also that we need to change. Uh, forever and forever and forever, until we see Him face to face, there will always be a need to learn and change. And so don't get discouraged if that's the case. Um, and that is what we're looking at this evening in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Now, the intention of our study together is to help prepare us for a year of effective outreach. Uh, February 12th with Dr. Vines and March 26th with our Invite Your One campaign. April 7th through 9th, Disciple Now and Harvest Crusade, April 23rd with Tim Williams. June 5th through 11th, our VBS here with a possible uh, evening time. June 24th through July 1st, our uh, church-wide mission trip, Indiantown, Florida, August 13th. Uh, the apologetics conference with uh, Ken Keithley, then October 27th one day Harvest Crusade with Bailey Smith. Um, there is a need then for us to change and to learn to grow and develop to be prepared for these. Now um, let me encourage you to consider something. Uh, I operate on the maxim that if we keep on doing what we've been doing, we'll keep on getting what we've been getting. In some cases that's good. In some cases it's mediocre. In some cases, that's not desirable at all. And that's true in every area of life. Can I suggest something? Between now and February the 12th, how about you improve your praying, uh, especially for lost people, and you improve your outreach by 2% between now and February 12th? And then between February, when Dr. Vines will be here, then between February 12th and March 26th, when we have our invite Your one, why don't you improve those two areas by 2%? And then between March 26th and April 23rd, when Tim Williams gets here, why don't you improve your praying and your outreach by 2%? And, and on and on. And by the end of the year, when Bailey Smith comes, you will have been vastly improved, noticeably improved. Now, if you want to do that more, that'd be great. But how about you lead your Sunday school class to improve by 2%? Um, can, can you do that? Let me ask you, can you improve your praying and outreach between now and February 12th by 2%? Is there anyone here, raise your hand, if there's anyone here who can't do that. Okay. There was a teenager this uh, past week that spent time on her phone texting everyone she knew to get them here Sunday, this past Sunday. Just an ordinary Sunday. And and so there was an attempt there to improve by at least 2%. Well, what if we uh, looked into God's Word together and allowed God to change our heart, desire, and all, and uh, our knowledge level of His Word, and of His character, and who He is, and improved in that way by 2%. I don't know how much effort that would take for you, but I will tell you that there will come a day when lost people will appreciate you. Or should I say former lost people. Just keep stretching. Just keep pushing. Just keep moving. Keep keep gaining and going forward with that. Well, that's... Uh, That is in the spirit of the Great Commission. We read that uh, and have read it often in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. uh, There it addresses the Lord of the Great Commission and the condition of the Great Commission, the command, extent, mark, source, message, companion, agents, and limits of uh, missions. And Matthew specifically used the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5 through 7 to instruct his congregation in the mission to Jews and to Gentiles. And there are several areas that he ends up covering here. One is the message of missions. Jesus addressed the message uh, of missions in Matthew 5 through 7, and he addressed three areas of it, the beginning and the continuing elements of it, and the end of the message of missions. So let's look at the beginning. Uh, here, he, um, uh, in the beginning of the message, uh, how you enter the kingdom of God, that's specifically what he addressed, entering the kingdom of God. And he taught that the beginning message involves a desperate need. Look at chapter 5 and verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means, and that's emphatic in the Greek text, no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that that, that was a shocking statement. That would be like saying to this crowd, if you are no more righteous than Billy Graham, you will not make it to heaven. Can you imagine saying that to any church crowd on a Wednesday night or Sunday morning and how discouraging that would be? That is what this sounded like when Jesus said it in verse number 20. There were people who were... There there, there was no righteousness that surpassed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now today, the use of the word Pharisee among modern Christians... Uh, is one of the last forms of cussing that Christians can get away with. I mean, you can almost, in a Christian way, cuss at someone by calling them a Pharisee. It's somewhat manipulative. The Pharisees today amongst us are very unpopular. But you have to understand, Jesus is speaking before his cross and before that final week of his life when they became so unpopular. The Pharisees in his day were wildly popular and they were admired. They were honored and revered and everyone wanted to be like them on uh, international surveys of the most admired people in the world, they'd be in the top ten every year. Not that that kind of thing happened, but uh, as an illustration. So they were not looked down upon. They were not reviled. They were not scorned as we do today at all. No, they were exalted and lifted up. They were laymen that were meticulous and careful and very rigid and disciplined in their personal lives to observe the law. And the scribes were the Bible scholars. They had large portions of the Old Testament memorized. In fact, some of them uh, had the entire Old Testament memorized. And, of course, their memory abilities were far greater than most people's today. But these were honored people. They were revered. They were exalted as examples of holiness and righteousness. And so to say that you will not make it to the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness... It's like saying, unless you're better than Billy Graham, you'll never make it. So there was no human righteousness that surpassed the scribes and the Pharisees at all. None that did. So where do you get a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees if there is no greater human righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees? You get it from God. And God gives you the gift of his righteousness, a former Pharisee said, when you place faith in Jesus Christ. God takes his own righteousness and shares it with the sinner who repents. And that's the whole point of Romans chapter 3, you see. And so in teaching the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is that Jesus is doing something similar to what the law did. Uh, Paul explained how the law, by the law, Romans three nineteen and 20, comes the knowledge of sin. The law never intended to save. The law was supposed to break hearts and make people humble before God so they cry out to him for grace, for that greater righteousness, so that they would see in themselves they could not do it. Well, the Sermon on the Mount has the same function. We're supposed to look at the Sermon on the Mount and our hearts are to be crushed over our own sin, so we end up turning to God for his gift of righteousness, the greater righteousness, the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes, Pharisees, and Billy Graham in his own personal walk. So this is what we find here. Jesus taught that the beginning message involves a desperate need, but then second, it involves a definitive content. Not just any religion will do. Not just any message will do. In fact, it is entirely possible to be sincere and to be sincerely wrong. It's what the scripture warns. Uh, the Pharisees, for example, had, uh, had a zeal, but without knowledge. They didn't have the right knowledge of the saving gospel of Christ. So Jesus warned his hearers to think in counterintuitive terms. Verses 13 to 15 of Matthew chapter 7 that we looked at Sunday will help us with this. And Jesus says here, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it here's what jesus is saying the way into the kingdom is not popular it is not broad and it is certainly not flexible it is narrow and it is hated the way to destruction then is not rare it is not ostracized. It is not difficult. It is easy, typical, and it is trendy. The way to destruction happens to be. So we have to think in terms that are counterintuitive to what the world might say, and even our own hearts may say, about religion and how to be made right with God. And Jesus here is delivering the hard truths. It reminds me of a missionary who goes by the pseudonym, Rick, uh, Nick Ripkin who has written the book, The Insanity of God, and for 10 years, 15 years or so, he headed up a nonprofit corporation in Somalia, bringing aid and relief to uh, Somalis there. And uh, Nick uh, said that the cultural differences between where he was from in Kentucky and the Somalis were just enormous, and he had to bridge them, and he appreciated those. Uh, And and I think we should appreciate neutral cultural differences. You don't extend your left hand to a Muslim, Arab, or Persian. Uh, That's terribly offensive to them. And there are a variety of other things that you have to observe as well that are neutral. Uh, They're they're not things that violate the scripture. In fact, the vast majority of cultural differences around the world are neutral things. They're not a matter of of, uh, righteousness or unrighteousness. They're neutral, and and it's wise to observe those. However, uh, Nick uh, had a Somalian friend. Uh, that uh, would that uh, he asked one day about a certain area of Mogadishu and how safe it was over there. And the Somali friend told him it's, it's entirely safe and he should be okay taking relief over there. Well he gets over to this area carrying relief and a gunfight breaks out and people are slaughtered and killed while he's there. He gets back and people ask him, what were you doing over there? That's one of the most dangerous places in Mogadishu. He confronted the friend and he said, why didn't you tell me it was that dangerous? And he fussed at him, and they, he got, they got into a contention with one another. And the Somali friend said, I don't know you well enough to tell you the truth. And in his particular culture, you didn't tell people hard truths unless you knew them well enough. You had to have a stronger personal relationship with them. Forget the fact that you nearly got your friend killed. Now that is a cultural difference that is a matter of righteousness. You don't lie to people under any circumstance, especially if a lie might get them killed. And I thought about that, and I thought, how many of God's people fit that same category? They won't tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're afraid that they don't know him well enough and they haven't built enough of a relationship. And I think that's behind a lot of the notion, the silly notion, that you've got to earn the right to be heard before you share the gospel. If that were so important, why didn't Jesus ever say that? It doesn't say that at all. Usually what we're doing, we're so tender and so fearful that we're actually making the lost person earn the right to hear. So we're assured that they won't hurt our feelings when we share the gospel with them. See, there's, there's not much difference. You see, Jesus didn't have that problem at all here in the text. He said what he said in verses 13 all the way down to verse number 27 even without a personal relationship with all these people, because people matter, they last forever some way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way that leads to life. So Jesus taught the beginning message involves a definitive Content, But then there's the continuing message. The Sermon on the Mount addresses the continuing message of missions that grows disciples in kingdom's way. Jesus has said in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Well, this is part of all that he commanded. This is the antecedent of all things that he commanded and so it helps us grow and it helps us mature and then there's the end of the message the sermon on the mount addresses the end message of missions that points to the future kingdom um the kind of uh, and, and turn with me to isaiah chapter 11 for a moment but the kind of life and interaction that jesus envisions here in the sermon on the mount will be the modus operandi the standard procedure of operating in the future kingdom of god uh, You talk about the concepts of love being exalted. Well, that will happen in the future kingdom. It happens imperfectly here. It will happen precisely as God intended there when he brings the full kingdom. In fact, (coughs) that peace shall extend so far, so deep, and, and in such a broad fashion throughout all of the world that it will affect even the animal kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. You would think that the animals and the beasts were attempting to obey the Sermon on the Mount. It says here, beginning in verse 6, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an oxen. They give up being carnivores and become herbivores. And vegetarians. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And the wean child shall put his hand into the viper's den. And the implication is here, without consequence at all. Snakes will be peaceful pets in that day. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Uh, and this is talking about the offspring of Jesse. From Jesse came David, David came succeeding kings, eventually Jesus Christ. And, and the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner or representative to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. In other words, the vision Jesus has of the kingdom of God that is represented in the Sermon on the Mount, shall one day be fully and completely implemented, and it will be the way all people operate, and all animals operate. And so Jesus here is delivering the message of missions. Then there's the extent of missions. Look at verses 13 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5. It says here, You are the salt of the earth... But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And you are the light of the world, and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus addressed a number of items that indicate the missionary extent of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, One there is the extent of influence. Jesus uh, made that clear in verses 13 uh, and verse number 14. Now, the way often I think that some of us read, and I believe I made this mistake and did this for years until I looked at it a little more carefully, is that in verse 13, I know what it says, but the way I took it and thought of it, In verse 13 would be, you are the salt of the church. In verse 14, you are the light of the Christians. Because frankly, they're about the only people that care about such things. But that's really not what it says, is it? It says this, you are the salt of the earth. And then verse 14, you are the light of the world. In other words, when Jesus talks about salt and light, he has a global vision in mind. And he's considering and thinking of reaching the globe through salt and light, which happen to be his people. So there's the extent of influence. Then there's the extent of his interest. Jesus addressed subjects in the Sermon on the Mount that are on the hearts and minds of people all over the world. I can tell you that just about every government building in the United States and around the world were dealing with some of these subjects today in their places, one way or the other. And if they didn't have the resources to deal with these issues, these kinds of things were on their heart and mind. Look at the issues that he dealt with. He addressed uh, God's blessings on the right kind of spirit. God blesses the poor in spirit. God blesses those who are mourn. God blesses those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the Beatitudes. Murder, anger, reconciliation, lawsuits, adultery and lust, divorce, vows and integrity, retribution and revenge, love and hate of neighbor, giving, prayer and fasting, greed and possessions, worry censoriousness or hypercritical spirit, uh, discernment, and popular and false religion. Some of these issues appeared among national leaders of just about every nation today or will this week. These are on the hearts and minds. These are not, in other words, issues that are merely restricted to churches and to Christians. These are not issues that are merely restricted to the Jews and Israel. These are global issues that people face day in and day and day out. No one ever accused Jesus of being irrelevant. None ever did. Now you compare this Sermon on the Mount to some of the words of Muhammad in the Quran or the Hadith. You compare this to what uh, some of the Buddhists wrote in the Vingetti, and um, you will find that this is very earthy where people live and it's not esoteric and it's not nebulous and hard to define and hard to figure out. You almost have to have a different form of consciousness and way of thinking that's unreal and unattached from the earth to understand what these others, other world religion leaders are saying, and that's precisely their point. Jesus, however, is God who became flesh, planted his foot on the earth and talked about everything to your attitude and your family. Entirely relevant, and he did so with authority. With authority, then there's the extent of prayer that indicates a global vision. Jesus envisioned prayer as a factor that expands and strengthens the kingdom of God upon the earth. He taught his disciples to pray in the disciples' prayer in Matthew six ten. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not just in Israel, but in the whole earth. And so he envisioned the prayers of the disciples impacting the entire earth. And then there's the Lord of missions himself, the one that issued the Great Commission. And Jesus inferred or assumed, inferred and assumed, his identity in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't give a great theological exposition of Christology, the study of Christ here. That's not what he did. He assumed it. And on that basis of who he is, he then uttered these statements. And so every one of these statements is deeply rooted in his person and who he is. And there, there's some uh, hints as to who he considers himself. There's revelation. He gives additional revelation uh, that elaborates upon and magnifies the Old Testament word. He gave further revelation on Old Testament commands. He used a formula in the Sermon on the Mount to introduce his teaching on the law uh, and to the disciples. He said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. I know that it was said in the Old Testament, and now I'm going to elaborate and extend that and give you an additional word. Now, the prophets would speak on behalf of the Lord. And they would make it clear that the Lord had said something when they uttered something. More than 300 times then the phrase in the Old Testament is used. Thus says the, in the old King James Version, thus saith the Lord. Do you notice what Jesus does these multiple times in Matthew chapter 5? Let let, let me me, um, read these to you. Beginning in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Verse 22. But I say to you that whoever gets angry with his brother is in danger of judgment. Verse 27, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust has committed adultery already. Verse 31, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, and he goes on with uh, elaboration on divorce. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely. Verse 34, but I say to you, Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. Do you see here the formula? You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. The prophet would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus would say, I say to you. Jesus is appearing and stating on his own authority, new revelation. Now who, who is capable of doing that? Who is capable of taking his word and elevating it to the level of the Old Testament? Is a disciple, an apostle, or a prophet uh, possessing that kind of authority? No, there's only one who can legitimately do that and that's God himself and that's who Jesus was in flesh. I say to you. So there's additional revelation here. Then there are commands. Uh... He issued new commands. He spoke in the imperative. And that's true in chapter 5, verse 12, 24, 29, 30, 39, 40, 44. Chapter 6, verse 1, 11, 19, 20, 25, and 28, and 33. Chapter 7, verse 1, 5, 7, 12, 15, and 23. And these don't merely appear as commands in the English version. They're actually commands in the Greek text. It's kind of interesting... If any human were to stand before a congregation and start barking out commands, that's what you would say about that person. They started barking out commands. And you'd be offended, and rightly so. But Jesus starts issuing commands, and his disciples submit, and his church submits. Why is that? Only God can deliver commands. And that's what Jesus does here. And he elevates them to the level of the Old Testament. Then his title. Look at chapter 7, verse 21. And look at the uh, pronoun, the first person pronoun, and then look at the title. In chapter uh, 7, verse 21, and in verse number 22. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Then verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they're fervent, they're, uh, they're, they're pious, they're emphatic, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Uh, the word is kurios. It's the Greek word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, for the God of creation, the one who parted the Red Sea. Jesus is taking that title and placing it on himself. Where did theological liberals ever get the idea that Jesus never claimed to be God? And then, the role, his role. Look look at the role he plays in judgment in verse 22. And ask yourself, is he a mere bystander? Does he merely execute the judgment? Or does he play another role? Who who is he in chapter 7, uh, verse number 22 and 23? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, what role is Jesus playing here on the day of judgment? He's the judge. And so he is the Lord of missions, and he's the God of missions. And so to disobey the great commission that Jesus issued is to disobey God. To obey it is to obey God himself. And then, finally, there are the agents of mission. Jesus spoke of the nature, essence, and experiences of the agents of uh, missions in the Sermon on the Mount. And he imagined several things taking place in the lives of uh, those that would be on mission uh, for him. One, one is persecution. And I should include verse 11 of chapter 5 in this. I will say, it, it, uh, I do recall that when I came to the Lord uh, on the West Coast uh, in, in California, uh, my junior year in high school, and got really committed right before my senior year, we quoted these verses a lot because they were real. And I was a bit surprised um, when when I returned to Texas that I didn't hear them often. I don't know if I've heard anyone quote these verses since August uh, of 1983, but we did, and they appeared in the pulpit, sermons, and Bible studies frequently uh, in '82 and '83, uh, the year after my conversion. Look at verse 11 and 12. And and you aren't supposed to feel guilty about that. I'm just telling you, this is real. And we we had to deal with this. Um, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name. Physically, we didn't suffer anything, but we were called a lot of names. I will tell you, though, that the more names we got called, the more kids got saved. It's counterintuitive. You think if you're unpopular with the world, people won't be a part of your church. You have a genuine faith, though, that stands by Jesus in the difficult times. It gets the attention of a lost world. The arrogant will rail, and they will foam, and they will agitate against you, but the humble will notice and see. By the way, never devise your evangelism strategy around the arrogant and the resistant. God will never save an arrogant person. Never save them. They've got to humble themselves before they get saved. Now, he'll humble them, too. But you always devise your evangelism strategy around the humble. That's who you look for. And that's why I take the approach to evangelism that I, that I, uh, that I take. Uh, because there are a lot of humble people out there that need the Lord, and they're, they're, they, they get saved, if somebody would tell them. But verses 11 and 12 were very relevant to, to where we were. They say, All kinds of evil against you falsely, for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad... Imagine that. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, if you're living in a polite and hospitable culture for the faith, you shouldn't feel guilty that you're not persecuted and people saying ugly things about you. You shouldn't feel bad about that at all. That's not your fault. Uh, That's probably the fruit of the gospel. I don't know how much more it's going to last where we are. I do know that one state employee, director of a particular office and department for the state government, was fired for things he preached in the pulpit here in Georgia. Yeah. And Kevin, Kelvin Cochran was fired for writing a book, a Christian book, on human sexuality, what the Bible teaches. And that's, that's Georgia. And uh, that's taking place more and more often. That's why I support the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act for Georgia. And we'll be, and um, kind have of encouraged our legislators to, get on board with it. Our legislative delegation uh, that um, uh, represent my home and our church uh, have been on board for it, and I'm grateful for that. But Jesus imagined the agents of mission would experience persecution. Then he imagined they they would uh, have some influence. They would affect others like salt and light. Uh, God would put them in the middle of a godless world And like salt, they would preserve. And like light, they would illumine some truth on the subject. I know about uh, one young lady that uh, came to the Lord, and she was upset about the non-Christian family and school and uh, workplace where uh, she had to, in her mind, endure non-Christians. And the pastor interrupted her a couple of times during her diatribe against lost people and said, well, where is it that you put light bulbs And she brushed off the question and kept complaining. And he said, well, where do you put light bulbs? And she brushed it off again and kept up her diatribe. And he asked a third time, a little more emphatically, where do you put light bulbs? And she said, I don't know, in the darkness. That's exactly where you put a light bulb, where you expect it will be dark. And that's what God does with his people. Uh, We're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. Then Jesus imagined the agents of mission um, enduring some struggle. And these are covered by the issues that are found in the text. They'll struggle with anger, lust, divorce, doublespeak, revenge, hate of neighbor of hate hate of neighbor and enemies, showiness in religious practices, difficulty in prayer, materialism, worry, censoriousness, theological liberalism, mere head knowledge, and false sense of security before God, and false prophets. These things are relentless. And then finally, Jesus imagined the agents of mission having to ask God to supply all of their needs. And so in Matthew 6, 11, he teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. And then later in chapter 6, in verse number 25, he says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body, more than clothing, but instead seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Get on mission with him, and he'll take care of the need. Where God guides, he always provides. And uh, if it's his, I had one friend tell me about a building program. If, if it's his will, it's his bill, and he takes care of that. He'll also take care of the money that you need to go on the mission trip to Indian Town. Florida this summer, all right? Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you for magnifying Jesus in it all. We praise you for who he is, and we thank you that he's got a heart uh, for the world. Uh, The world is on his heart, and his sight is upon the world. It's in his eyes. It's um, very dear and cherished and treasured by him, and I want to pray that you will provide all the resources that we need our knowledge resources, heart resources, spiritual resources, financial resources, to make an enormous impact upon our own world and our community, Indian town, Guatemala, everywhere our people go. And we pray that you would make that real for the glory and the sake of the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.